There is an infectious disease affecting people all around the world and was responsible for more than 1 million deaths globally in 2020. If you had to guess, maybe you would think it was COVID-19. Well, think again, because it's a disease that was first discovered in the 1800s called tuberculosis. In this episode, we'll be speaking with two guests from Stop TB Canada about why we still need to be concerned about tuberculosis and the urgent need to prioritize programs targeted to the prevention, control, and elimination of this disease. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. You're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for all things public health and global health. From the Sustainable Development Goals, to the social determinants of health, as well as interesting dialogues about the diverse career opportunities that exist in these fields. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so other people like you can benefit from our content. My name is LaShawn, your host for this episode, alongside with my co-host, Gordon, and our guests, co-chairs from Stop TB Canada, Dr. Elizabeth Ray and Tina Campbell. Dr. Elizabeth Ray has been working as an Associate Medical Officer of Health with the Tuberculosis Program at Toronto Public Health since 2005. She is one of the authors of the 2013 Canadian TB Standards and has been involved in TB policy issues in Canada for many years. Our second guest, Tina Campbell, is an Indigenous woman of Cree ancestry and lived a majority of her life in Nunavut. Tina became a registered nurse in 2013 and continued work as a TB nurse for six years, where her main roles were in case management, contact tracing, and surveillance. She then continued as a territorial TB educator for a year, where she provided training, orientation, and TB education to staff. Since September 2019, she serves in the TB advisor role for the Northern Intertribal Health Authority. Dr. Ray and Tina, welcome to the Public Health Insight Podcast. Thanks for having us. Awesome. So thank you so much for joining us. And I want to first start off with Dr. Ray. So like I mentioned, you're currently serving as the Associate Medical Officer of Health with the Tuberculosis Program at Toronto Public Health. So can you tell us a bit about your day-to-day role and more about the TB program at the health unit? Sure. So I'm an Associate Medical Officer of Health, which means I'm a public health physician. And uh, so I lead the Toronto Public Health TB program, which is the, it's actually the largest TB program in Canada. Um, there are about 300 people every year who get sick with TB in Toronto. Uh, and along with them, uh, something like 2,000 people who are contacts of those infectious cases who themselves need medical care and follow-up. And another round about 2,000 people who are referred to Toronto Public Health by Immigration Canada for some TB follow-up after they come to Canada. Uh, it's a big program. In pre-COVID times, uh, that means a team of about 70 people, public health nurses, TB outreach workers, a little group of clerks who do nothing but handle TB drug orders. So kind of a, a mix of staff, an epidemiologist, two social workers, and kind of behind that, people like, you know, communications and graphic design people that are more kind of public health unit staff, not specifically with the TB program. Broadly speaking, our, our job is uh, to prevent TB in people who are not currently sick with TB. So that might be uh, working on advocacy around determinants of health that contribute to developing TB. So uh, homelessness, for example. Um, overcrowding. Those are the kinds of things that can easily lead to, to rapid transmission of TB. If somebody in a homeless shelter, for example, has TB, they're around a lot of people in close quarters. Um, but also supporting preventive treatment for people who have TB infection but are not sick. And especially supporting people who do have TB illness to get all the way through treatment. It's uh, it's no fun. It's a long treatment. It involves a lot of medications. People can sometimes be very sick at the beginning of it. 
Um, and, and it's kind of a socially fraught illness. So there's a lot of social and emotional kind of things tangled up with TB. And in Toronto, you know, it's like 90, something like 95% of people who get sick with TB in Toronto were born or lived outside of Canada. And that's usually where they picked up their TB. So this all happens in a big cultural mix. So, so all of those language and culture and social ideas about health and about TB are a big, big part of working with it. And of course, we also do a lot of work with the treating clinicians who are actually, you know, prescribing medicines and ordering chest x-rays and that kind of stuff. And with organizations or facilities where, where TB happens, so hospitals, um, shelters, uh, schools sometimes, or workplaces if we're doing contact follow-up there. Awesome. That was very insightful on that sort of day-to-day. I didn't realize how big the program was and how many staff are dedicated to that specific program. So that just shows how labor-intensive and how important that work is. So, Tina, I'm curious to hear from you. You're currently a TB advisor for the Northern Intertribal Health Authority. So talk us through what your day-to-day work looks like there. Yeah. So before I start speaking, I just wanted to acknowledge that I am talking to you today from Treaty 6, uh, the traditional territory of the Cree and the homeland of the Métis people. Um, This is where I reside and work. Um, So I'm the TB advisor at Northern Intertribal Health Authority, or NETHA for short. Um, So NETHA is the only First Nations organization of its kind in the country. Um, It's comprised of Prince Albert Grand Council, Meadow Lake Tribal Council, Peter Ballantyne Cree Nation, and Lac Lange Indian Band. This partnership kind of joined together in 1998, and NETHA delivers a service known as Third Level. Um, So essentially, we help our partners, um, you know, if it's developing policies, um, educational resources, advisory services. Um, but our TB program is unique because our nurses, we have four currently full-time TB nurses that work under um, our program. Um, and we serve 33 First Nations on reserve communities. So that's a really small team to serve such a big um, population. There's about 55,000 people um, within our, our jurisdiction. So day to day, you know, my, my position, I, I get calls from um, community health programs, um, health directors, you know, if they need any resources for TB um, for their communities or want any updates on, on the TB activity in their, in their regions. Um, Currently, we do have some tuberculosis outbreaks, and I believe that they're a direct result of of the impact that COVID-19 has had on our TB programming. Um, And our nurses are quite busy. They've been traveling consistently to communities since October. Prior to that, they were kind of, we'd only go into the communities if it was um, absolutely needed, just because there was um, continued to be COVID outbreaks um, within, within different communities. So... I coordinate the outbreak responses, any travel, and also organize any TB program worker training. So our TB program workers are community members that are in each community. We're very lucky to have them. They're community members. People know them. People trust them. Uh, they speak the language, whether it be Cree or Dene, depending on what community they reside in. They've been really carrying the TB programs in the communities during COVID. And, you know, there was a lot of reassurance that we had to give as well because people were scared of COVID and going into houses and having people come into their houses. So we've been pretty busy. I'm really lucky to have the TB nurses that I do because they're extremely hardworking and the TB program is huge. So in Saskatchewan, um, the clinical part is run by the province um, and it's uh, called Gatchewan TB Prevention and Control, and it's in outside of, I mean, sorry, works out of Saskatoon. <laughs> so we have a bunch of nurse clinicians assigned to different communities and different areas in our in our jurisdiction. So our nurses work um, in collaboration with them um, to organize, you know, any training, any contact investigations that's needed in the communities because they have, we have short staff um we're short-staffed in a majority of our communities. And of course, because of COVID, everybody is extremely um, exhausted and burnt out. So um, we often 
are asked by the communities to come in and, and do uh, a majority of their TB program work. Um, and some communities, you know, they have up to a couple thousand people, so it can get really busy and, and our nurses are working long hours in the, in the communities as well. So I'm sure I have more to add, but that's pretty much what a day looks like for me. Yeah, for sure. You two seem like you're super busy at work and you're doing really important things, collaborating with so many different people and, you know, really stretching the resources to, you know, make as much positive impact as possible. And what I also know is that you both are co-chairs of Stop TB Canada. Can you tell me a bit about what that is and, you know, what it does and why does it exist? So Stop TB Canada is a national advocacy organization. Um, it was started about 20 years ago, um, and uh, and the goal is is basically to advocate for an end to tuberculosis domestically here in Canada as well as globally. Um, there are uh, there's a number of different stop TB uh, country specific organizations around the world. Um, Stop TB India, Stop TB USA, Stop TB Mexico, and there's also uh, uh, an international Stop TB partnership, um, which doesn't exactly coordinate the, the like the country specific organizations are are independent, um, but there is a, a big role in terms of of global advocacy that the the, the international Stop TB partnership plays, um, as well as some, some really major pieces like a, a wonderful initiative like the Global Drug Facility, which is the world's largest purchaser of TB drugs um, and acts as a, a low-cost, um, basically, warehouse and supply chain and infrastructure support for low- and middle-income countries to be able to access high-quality TB medications at low cost, including multidrug-resistant TB medications. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And I really like that overarching goal of ending TB domestically and globally. So having that consideration of both. And it makes sense because, you know, as you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of people traveling across the world into Canada. And there has to be that consideration of this interconnectivity between different countries and different regions in the world. So I thought that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Canada has, you know, I mean, Tina can speak to this, right? There's, there's, there's Indigenous Canadians who are, are like here forever, uh, but the rest of us came from elsewhere, right? I work in Toronto where half of us were born outside of Canada. I'm an immigrant myself. So it's maybe not surprising given those demographics that, that so much of our TB in Toronto is connected to the global pandemic. Nationally, that's about 70% of people who get sick with TB were born outside Canada and presumably got their, like, got their original infection, were well when they came to Canada. And, and for whatever reason, often years later, um, it becomes active and they fall sick. But the other 20, there's another 20% among Indigenous Canadians. And Tina's the one to speak to this, but that 20% is entirely Canada's. Entirely Canada's, you know, shame that is still there and, and entirely on Canada f- to fix. That's not something to say, oh, well, it's this big global, you know, giant problem elsewhere. That's here. That's entirely on us. Yeah. So um, this is my second year with the, the Stop TB Canada Steering Committee. Um, last year I joined and, you know, it's a, a network of, um, varying, you know, um, professions from across Canada, but our, our main focus and goal together is TB elimination. And it's, you know, it's opened up a lot of doors and it, I've learned quite a bit, um, within the last year, um, from all these individuals, they're all very passionate about TB elimination as well. So I'm very grateful to be uh, a part of it. And then, um, you know, I was nominated and appointed as the co-chair alongside Elizabeth. And I've been working in TB since 2010. And I knew of Elizabeth um, quite, a, quite a long time ago when I was working in Nunavut. So she's somebody that I've always looked up to. So sitting beside her is, is you know, 
a really amazing thing to, to be doing. So um, since I've started as well, I've been able to um, speak to a lot of Indigenous issues and I've been reached out to talk about importance of cultural orientation and awareness um, training, uh, specifically in regards to the history of, of tuberculosis and the Indigenous population. Um, so I can offer a little bit of background for that. Um, you know, so TB came to Canada uh, with European settlers in the 1700s. Um, and then in 1867, tuberculosis became the leading cause of death in Canada. Um, and then, of course, you know, as they learned that TB was infectious, they tried to isolate those infected in sanatoriums. And then, of course, as time, you know, progressed and, you know, residential schools came about and TB sanatoriums and Indian hospitals, um, a lot of negative um, and, you know, tragic events ha ha took place during that time frame. Reserve communities were created. And so to this day, um, it, I find that learning about the history and how things were in these residential schools, so, you know, poor ventilation, poor, um, you know, sanitization, malnutrition, all that kind of thing. So the isolation of reserve communities and, you know, northern remote communities, um, they do still face, you know, inadequate nutrition and housing issues as well, like poor ventilation, overcrowding. So that still to today has that creation of um, increased disease transmission, especially with something like tuberculosis. So um, I think that that's still remains a huge a huge issue with TB and how there's so many TB cases within our indigenous populations today. So, wow! Thanks for giving us the context on the history and the background of of the disease. And now I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit more about what is tuberculosis and what are those specific features or characteristics of this disease that has made it stick around for such a long time. So. TB, tuberculosis, is a disease caused by um, Mycobacterium tuber tuberculosis bacillus. Um, it usually affects the lungs, but it can affect any um, other part of your body, like your bones, joints, kidneys, your brain, um, and reproductive organs. So it is a slow-growing bacteria. Um, and often people who are infected with the TB germ, since it's slow-growing bacteria, they don't know that they have it. Um, until they start becoming unwell with symptoms. And usually by the time you're experiencing symptoms like a cough, then at that point you can, you can, you have the ability to spread it to others. Um, you know, there's two types of, two main types of TB, which is latent TB and active TB. So when somebody breathes in the TB germ, um, about 90% of the population, they'll, your, your body will kind of lock it up and it'll stay in this latent or sleeping form. Um, there's always a potential for it to become or turn into active TB. Um, and usually your risk of that happening is higher within the first two years of, of becoming infected. Um, and then they offer treatment for latent TB, um, which can be anywhere from three months to nine months, depending on what uh, regime that that you're prescribed um, and I found you know in my experience it's hard to to convince people to take treatment for latent TB just because if you're not feeling unwell then people often um, find it hard to justify taking medication especially for months <laughs> at a time um, but if you don't treat the latent TB, there's always that chance in your lifetime that it can progress to active TB and some risk factors um, with that are, you know, if you're, you become immunocompromised, develop other health conditions, um, and as you grow older as well. Um, and with active TB, so about 5% of the population, 5 to 10% go on to develop active TB um, right after um, becoming infected. Um, and, you know, people with active TB will have cough, um, fever, night sweats, uh, loss of appetite, unexplained weight loss. Um, and then, of course, if, if active TB is left untreated, it can become become quite fatal. So there are some risk factors um, to developing active TB. Um, and, I, you know, if you have uh, HIV infection, chronic renal failure, 
cancer, diabetes, uh, if you have poor nutrition habits, if you smoke cigarettes, um, and if you're under the age of, of five. So um, the pediatric population, um, once they're exposed, they have a higher risk of, of developing um, life-threatening life forms of TBs. That's where, you know, where you have high incidences of TB in these these communities, it's really important that people have some sort of pediatric um, process when they're screening clients who come in who are symptomatic. Um, and I think that's something too that needs to be more more known and more enforced in 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 communities with TBs. Uh, to to follow up on on Tina's point that it it can be really severe. Without treatment, the natural history of TB is that half of people will die within two years of first developing symptoms. So before the first real treatments for TB were developed, like the first effective medication was developed during World War II, there, there hasn't been effective medical treatment for TB for even 100 years. And TB's been around for millennia before that, right? So for most of most of our human history, TB has been something that that people die from, and they die slowly and sometimes dramatically, right? It, Tina was saying it's a slow-growing bacteria; it's a slow illness. People can be sick for months and months, sometimes years before they die, and there's this kind of classic historical picture of people wasting away and coughing up blood. And that is a picture of what fatal TB can look like without treatment. So, so it still kills um, a million and a half people a year globally, generally in places where it's difficult to access diagnosis and treatment. And that, you know, dramatic fatal impression of TB is still something that's very much part of cultural and family histories. You know, when you talk to, to people, no matter what part of the world they're from, that's often the kind of thing that will come to mind. And, and it's one of the reasons why people can be quite frightened of TB. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons why, why sometimes people can even be reluctant to take latent TB treatment because it's like, well, I'm not sick. I don't want to have something that terrifying. So if I'm not sick, I'm good. Thanks. Bye. I was going to ask you about both of you can chime in on this too. So one, do we, do we screen for latent TB? Is it different from uh, finding active TB? And then two, what are the difference in the treatment regimens for active versus latent? Is one longer than the other? And I guess if latent is just as long as active, is there less of an incentive for someone who has latent to want to pursue treatment? Just trying to understand the underlying motivations for people's decisions to get treated or not. So in Canada, there's um, there's no kind of routine screening for tuberculosis. There used to be. It, there used to be widespread across the country. Uh, you know, every school child would get a TB skin test when they started school um, and often again in high school. Um, that's that was rolled back decades and decades ago, except in some very high incidence, high risk communities that tend to be. And again, Tina can speak to this from her personal experience as a TB nurse um, in some of working against TB in some of those communities where TB screening does still happen is uh, as part of the immigration process. Um, so when you apply to emigrate to Canada, um, whether it's on a student visa or citizenship, you know, landed status, whatever, um, the a, a TB checkup is part of that. Um, at the moment, it really just checks for TB in the lungs because um, that's the only part that would be infectious, right? Like the idea is to, to prevent a situation where someone would step off the plane and be infectious to people living in Canada. Um, so, so most people would, the immigration exam would not include a, a, a check for latent TB, only for active TB in the lungs. So there again, it's not checking for active TB in your kidneys or your bones, just in the lungs. Um, 
if you do get diagnosed with TB on an immigration medical exam, it doesn't, it doesn't disqualify you, but it does put your immigration application on hold mm. until you finish TB treatment. Oh, I see. Wherever you are. So it can certainly delay people's immigration right. process if you get diagnosed with active TB. And how, how long does that typically take the treatment aspect of it? Right, right. So uh, treatment for active TB is a yeah. minimum of six months with four, four antibiotics, special TB-specific antibiotics. Yeah. Um, people who have more severe disease, it could be as long as nine months or 12 months. If you have multi-drug resistant TB, it can be even longer because in that case, you've got a strain of TB that's resistant to the, the main medication. So now you're looking at the backup medications, which can, you know, they're backup because they're, they're not as, as fast acting, right, as, as, as effective as the main drugs. And they can have more side effects. They're more expensive. Some of them can have to be given by IV or injection. We can talk about that. Like treat, treatments for TB are improving, especially for multidrug resistant TB. So there's some really wonderful prospects there to make TB treatment better. Um, but it's still still arduous right now. Yeah. So I can talk a little bit about my my experience both in in Nunavut and um, Saskatchewan. So when I worked in Nunavut, um, I actually worked within a TB clinic. So they had a designated clinic to uh, dedicated to tuberculosis. And uh, of course, you know, part of my job was case managing um, clients who had uh, active TB or latent TB. Um, so our screening process is up there. Um, they did have, you know, pediatric screening. Um, they offered the BCG vaccine at birth up there as well. Um, which uh, protects you for the first two years of your life from life-threatening forms of TB. Um, and then before um, children enter the school system, so when they're four years old, they do a preschool screen, and they also um, get screened for tuberculosis at that point as well. Um, so that, and then once, you know, you do a tuberculin skin test, and then once somebody is found to, to be positive, then you do a workup and we rule out active TB first, and then we offer preventative um, treatment uh, for latent tuberculosis infection. Um, when we're doing contact investigations, so when we identify a client with active TB, uh, we have to go in and, and you know, obviously establish a relationship with the, with the client and kind of um, identify people in their in their lives, in their homes, in their workplace, social circles um, who've been potentially exposed to active TB, um, and then we screen them the same way we do it, a, a tuberculin skin test if they're eligible. If they haven't had a previous positive in the past, we do chest X-rays and we do sputum and we do blood work, um, and then of course if they're identified to have active TB, they're offered active TB treatment. They're uh, identified to not be active TB, they're, they're offered latent uh, TB um, treatment as well. So for me, when I started working with TB back in 2010, um, it was after my first year of nursing school, and we actually had to do an immunization um, workup and have all of our, our stuff up to date. So I had lived in, in the North since, for most of my life in Iqaluit at that point, um, from 2001. So this was 2010. So I had worked, lived there for about nine years and I got a tuberculin skin test and it was actually positive. So I was diagnosed with latent TB infection and I was offered preventative treatment and I took it. So they do treatment um, for TB throughout Canada. The standard is through direct observed therapy um, or DOT. So a healthcare provider who's trained, it gives you this medication so I was on this medication twice a week for nine months. Um, so I was a nursing student. Of course, I asked all the questions. Why can't I take this medication on my own? Um, and then learning about um, about how the TB programming works, it made sense to to have you know that interaction with the health healthcare system. Plus, TB medication too can be pretty harsh on your liver. So having that um, constant monitoring and engagement with the healthcare system was was good to make sure that your treatment was safe. Um, but it was really hard. Like, um, I blame that today for me 
finding it difficult to swallow like the smallest pills because those those pills are big and chalky. In <laughs> um, Saskatchewan, when I moved down here, I found that they, they didn't, I believe they stopped, I can't remember the exact year they stopped giving the BCG at birth, um, but it's been a while. And they stopped um, pediatric screening in 2019 because they had done a study within our, our organization communities that they were only finding about one or two positive TSTs from doing all this extensive pediatric screening. So what they implemented was um, increased pediatric screening when there's a case of active TB. So, um, or sorry, a client with active TB. Um, so if they're identified, then our goal as um, TB nurses is to go in and ensure that we identify anybody under the age of five um, or any children in the house that may be at a higher risk of, of TB progressing into active TB um, after exposure. So that's how Saskatchewan is different from Nunavut as opposed to, you know, having a designated TB clinic where we do screening almost, you know, every day for, for people. So, um, and in terms of treatment, yeah, it's really hard to, to um, convince people to take treatment for latent TB infection. That's where education um, and that relationship uh, comes into play and is really important. Um, I find that the more education you give somebody and, you know, weighing the, the benefits to the risks um, and also, you know, somebody in TB care or TB treatment is often with you for months and months and months, as um, Elizabeth has stated. So the care approach too, it has to be a huge collaboration um, and TB programs too, uh, especially in Indigenous populations, have, have an incentive program. So we kind of, we're there to try and motivate and keep these clients engaged and because our goal is treatment completion and TB cure. Um, so we work alongside not only the, the client, but other, um, other areas of healthcare as well too, so... Fantastic. And it's it's so great hearing more about the programs, screening of TB, the active and latent forms, the real nitty gritty of what goes on behind the scenes and, you know, the contact tracing aspect. Now that we talked about that, I want to know a little bit more because surely the COVID-19 pandemic affected these programs, the delivery, the capacity, maybe the drug chain supply aspects of the different aspects of your program. So can you tell me a bit about how maybe these programs were disrupted by COVID-19, whether it's at the local, national, or even global context? Sure. So so I said in Toronto that the TB team is about 70 people. Three quarters of our team got redeployed to COVID. I got entirely redeployed to COVID. I've been working with COVID long-term care outbreaks for two years. So, so that means a lot of of core TB work that hasn't happened for two years. Um, it's really been reduced to uh, a much more bare bones support for people who with TB illness, supporting them getting through, through treatment. Um, almost no contact follow-up at all for two years. Um, and that's really it. So none of that other latent TB support Immigrate, either the immigration follow-up care, um, none of that, none of the TB outreach education stuff, um, World TB Day activities have pretty much not happened. Other than you know, we light light up the uh, the CN Tower and the Toronto that that kind of illuminated Toronto sign, yeah, gets gets um, lit up red. Um, but that's it. Like we usually have a, a big event every year for World TB Day. Not possible. Um, so and and even the level of support that we've been able to do for people ill with TB has been less than we would normally be able to do. Right. Like our our social workers got redeployed. So the amount of help that you can give people with um, housing getting them linked up to whatever income support they're eligible for, um, helping them get linked up um, with uh, food support or whatever kind of practical realities that they they need to get solved if they're going to get through TB treatment successfully and be as healthy as they can. 
our ability to do that has been very constrained. Um, and the, the treatment support program that Tina talked about, um, directly observed therapy, where there's someone actually working with every person who's in TB treatment, um, I guess this is kind of a good and bad thing. Um, a lot of that traditionally has been done in person. So you, you meet with your TB nurse or outreach worker or support worker um, at home or in the park, like really wherever you want to meet. Um, but the other, the other way of doing that that had started even long before COVID is doing it virtually. So uh, over WhatsApp, for example, or you know some other kind of um, digital platform, um, and because of COVID, uh, and also because we had we had lost a bunch of our TB staff were, were redeployed to COVID, um, uh, we switched a lot more quickly over to video support, um, which in some ways is great. Right. Like that meant that that there was someone that people could still be connected to right through TB treatment. Um, most people have a phone, you know, like a, a smartphone um, and and we'll we'll give people a phone if they don't to be able to do that, that video DOT connection. Um, but it does mean, you know, like Tina's right, like in Toronto as well, people were staff were worried about going into people's homes as much especially at the beginning of covid when we weren't as clear about what kind of ppe before there was a vaccine and and the people who were in the home were worried about having you know visitors coming in especially because these were visitors who were taking care of lots of other people right so lots of worries about covid transmission but that meant that people who people who really benefited either from having uh, a, a nurse, like a trained nurse to come and help with side effects, with managing their diabetes while they're in the middle of treatment. Like, there's a lot of medical complexities that can happen that having that, that really close nursing support can make a big difference for managing complications and side effects. It was a lot harder for us to do that, those in-person visits. And there's also a big piece often in terms of kind of social support. Like Botina and I have talked about some of the um, emotional social dimensions of having TB. Um, and then you throw a COVID pandemic on top of it that can make people feel even more isolated. Uh, having someone who's going to be there and listen to you and be part of helping you get through treatment no matter what is really helpful for anybody with a chronic disease. There's an end to TB treatment, but it's still a long time. It, it is a little bit like a chronic disease that way. So that that kind of support has been a lot harder during COVID with what's essentially a staffing shortage, right? With so many people redeployed. Well, yeah, th thanks so much for sharing. And I I'd love to hear from you, Tina, as well, because I know that on top of the COVID-19 pandemic, you have TB outbreaks in many indigenous communities. And oftentimes in these communities, like you mentioned earlier, um, there's a lot of housing challenges and overcrowding that can lead to complexities when you're talking about isolations from COVID-19 protocols. And I I'm guessing as well, some sort of isolation with TB protocols and back tracing. Can you talk a bit about some of the complexities that COVID brought about? Yeah. So as Elizabeth had mentioned in her in her workplace, um, my entire team was deployed to help with uh, with some COVID surge, um, whether it be, you know, um, keeping track of active cases and doing contact uh, tracing and daily monitoring of, of active COVID, I mean, sorry, positive COVID cases, um, and then going into the community, doing screening, um, helping out with immunizations as well. Um, so... You know, my role throughout the, the pandemic, of course, I, I remained in the TB advisor role, but I was doing uh, mostly COVID stuff um, because our, our trips into the communities were um, put to a halt. Um, there was only, you know, emergent and necessary um, travel going into the communities and, you know, you had to get 
uh, screened and then had to get a letter from our MHO for approval to go into these communities. And then our provincial TB program as well, um, you know, a majority of them, um, you know, were, were assisting with COVID as well. Um, and then our contact investigations became, you know, we'll focus on the household since we can't go into the communities to help um, do a, a, a wide contact investigation. And I think because of that, um, a lot of people were missed. A lot of people that were exposed and were high risk were kind of missed throughout those those couple years. So I think that is that is um, a reason why we're seeing a lot of TB clients and a lot of um, positive TB um, diagnosis today because of all the 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 deployment of all our resources into COVID and um, it was interesting too is while our nurses were deployed into the communities we were asked um, while we were doing home visits to also screen for COVID Um, so then you know we're coming out of the community and we're like okay so if somebody is screened for COVID and they become they're negative for COVID is anybody screening them for TB? And, um, well, no, they weren't. <laughs> we did find a couple, you know, clients who had been going to the health center a couple of times and negative COVID, negative COVID, okay, but they actually ended up having tuberculosis. So um, it's a huge impact. COVID has had a huge impact, and it's... it's um becoming more apparent as time goes on and we have more and more cases diagnosed so there's one sort of interesting thing to think about i don't think we really have the data to know much about how this actually played out yet but one of the things to think about is have covid restrictions slowed down transmission of tb right there's a lot of people working from home so that means if i have active tb and i can work from home I'm not going to infect my coworkers over a Zoom meeting, right? Um, things like that. But um, but a lot of people haven't been able to work from home. And when you think about who is at risk for TB, and you think, okay, well, people who who migrated more recently to Canada, um, people who are um, living in reserve communities with really crowded housing, um, uh, people who already live in multi-generational households, right? A, a lot of those people are do work that you have to, you still have to go to work, right? So um, uh, lots of those essential services that we talked about during COVID, a lot of those have involved people who come from, broadly speaking, communities that may have a higher risk of TB in the background as well. And all the code restrictions in the world don't do anything to solve overcrowded housing problems. So transmission within households is, you know, COVID restrictions aren't going to do anything about the, the risk in households. It's too early to really know whether those things have made a difference, but but there's some real reasons in, in Canada where they may not have so much. Um, so that's something else to think about. And I think one of the other pieces is, you know, people have been worried enough about going into hospitals, hospitals full of COVID patients. If I go to eMERGE, maybe I'll catch COVID, right? So, so... Um, there's real worries in a, on an anecdotal level. Um, you know, we, we think that a bunch of people who got sick with TB over the last couple of years were sick for longer before they sought medical care because they were worried about going to a hospital or, you know, it was difficult to find a doctor who would, would see you in person, Right. A lot of medical care was more difficult to access during COVID. Um, and then again, um, kind of what Tina's talking about, right? You show up with cough and a fever over the last two years. The very first thing people are going to do is say, oh, maybe it's COVID. Um, so there's, you know, it's a bit of a worry that, you know, has, has TB kind of fallen off the radar a little bit. Um, 
and and that that might be uh, part of why people seem to have been more ill by the time they actually get diagnosed. Yeah, I, I'll add too to that that you know um, there's a lot of remote communities and a lot of remote communities are um, have high indigenous population. Um, so their access to care might already be, um, you know, limited. They might not have a hospital in their community, so they might have to get flown out. Um, and then that kind of makes people hesitant to, to seek care as well, especially if they're aware of TB history. Um, and with COVID restrictions as well, you know, if you have somebody going in and getting tested for COVID and they're negative, then okay, they're going to continue to go to their grandmas or their uncles or their, you know, um, because they're cleared of COVID and nobody is, is thinking about, oh, maybe you have tuberculosis. Maybe we, sh- we should keep you home, you know, until we figure this out. But that wasn't happening. And as a result, too, we have been seeing, you know, people coming in being diagnosed with TB at very advanced stages of diseases, um, you know, TB meningitis, um, disseminated TB that, you know, has spread um, to other organs of your body. And so I think that can be viewed too as as, as a result of all the, the COVID restrictions and the impact that it's had on, on TB as well. One other thing I wanted to add to that about, you know, talking about transmission in outside of the home or in, in kind of more more public places or workplaces, that kind of thing, is masking. TB is airborne. So that means if I have TB and I'm wearing a mask, that's going to cut down. It won't, it won't totally prevent, but it is going to cut down on my ability to get lots of TB bacteria out into the air where somebody else can breathe it. So that's, that, that is kind of an interesting one to... It's, an, it's a sort of an un, unknown factor right now how much of an impact that will make outside of households. And I want to say again, like the 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 biggest the biggest risk situation um, is always within households. Um, you know, those are the people that that we you know sleep with, eat with, hang out with, you know, day in day out, and probably even more during COVID. So, um, you know, the, the worry about making sure that households and family members get, get the best TB care possible is a real, like that has to be way up there in terms of access to care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for elaborating on that. I was going to ask you about, because we know things like the flu, we were seeing that the rates are, are dropping with flu and the flu-related deaths are dropping. So I was, I was basically going to ask you, Public health measures like masking, physical distancing, ventilation, what impact did that have? But you're making the case, both of you, that, well, the close contacts that we're worried about are people living together, family members. So it's not so much you're at the grocery store and someone walks by you and you get TB. It's more the people that you're around in your daily circles that you're worried about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's prolonged or frequent interaction somebody um that leads to tb transmission it's not you know we we worry about picking up covid with a 15 15 minute um at close quarters kind of thing for tb it it tends to be much longer exposures and interactions one of the things that i really wanted to know like given we're talking about all these challenges and all the with covid19 and all the inherent challenges present with tb itself can you talk a little bit about the state of the current TB surveillance systems in Canada and the various challenges this poses to TB programming in light of what we talked about with COVID-19? So during COVID, we've gotten really used to, uh, you know, opening up news sites and looking for today's COVID count, like day-to-day, instant, real-time updates on COVID cases and COVID immunization coverage and hospital and ICU status and all of that. Um, That kind of surveillance depends entirely on having real-time electronic health surveillance data. So interconnected healthcare databases. 
Um, we don't have that for TV. We absolutely do not. The last, so, so this is a digression into, uh, you know, uh, constitutional systems in Canada, right? So under the Canadian constitution, health is a provincial and territorial mandate, not a federal mandate. So that means de facto, we, we don't have a national TB program or system. We have 13 individual provincial and territorial TB programs, plus layered on top of that, Indigenous Services Canada, which um, is to some extent a 14th um, sort of TB program. Um, not all of those even have electronic data, TB databases themselves um, or well-functioning ones. Um, some of that Tina should, Tina should speak to. Some of that has to do with um, uh, internet access in remote areas, right? Like how do you actually make an electronic system work without, without a robust infrastructure? Um, but even then, we don't have remotely a timely way of gathering it all up at the national level. The last national TB data was published in 2019, and the content was 2017 TB data. So the last national level snapshot of what is happening with TB in Canada was five years ago. We have five-year-old data for TB to work with to say, well, so has the pandemic had any impact? The short answer is, we don't know. You might know at a very local level, like Tina knows exactly what is happening in her communities. Um, because she and, and the team that she works with work directly with those people. And to some extent, that's the same in Toronto, though I will say with so few staff, I can't tell you how many contacts there have been because we haven't been able to do the contact follow-up, so we haven't entered the contact data. Um, so, so at the national level, like it's incredibly archaically slow. Um, really totally needs a, a like, you know, digital modernization revamp. Also needs way more epidemiology support. Like even that 2019 report was bare bones. It was provincial territorial breakdown, age, gender. That's almost it. So none of the kind of detailed information that I would need in Toronto or Tina would need in Northern Saskatchewan to be able to say, What's gone, what's gone awry? Which groups are specifically kind of falling between the cracks that we need to do more to support? None of that kind of more detailed epidemiologic analysis. And in Canada, that would need to happen, not just at the national level, so that we're all, all pulling in the same direction to national TB elimination, but that also needs to happen at within every TB program, right? So that means within Ontario needs to do that kind of detailed status update to know where we're at. Um, so does Toronto, so does Saskatchewan. Um, so there's a lot of, of even where are we at catching up to do. I'll just add a, a couple points to that as well. Like, um, so with First Nations communities, they have... Um, our program, NITA, is funded by Indigenous Services. So we, um, you know, of course, oversee the First Nations communities in northern Saskatchewan. And what I've noticed is every community is different. They have different ways of storing their data, who has access to it, and rightly so, it's their information. Um, but it's hard to get concrete numbers. Um, I find that it's hard to, to get accurate numbers of uh, LTBI um, diagnoses or, or, um, and before the pandemic, our organization actually had, we were going to do a, a research project and try and identify these, these LTBI numbers and clients and then offer them pre preventative treatment because, of course, you can't eliminate TB without eliminating, you know, the whole big picture active cases and latent TB cases. Um, I, I find it so, 
um, surprising and frustrating that, you know, our TB data is over five years old. Um, how are we going to make any changes if we don't have updated statistics? Um, I honestly think that it needs to be more of a priority, you know, um, nationally and, and provincially and territorially to, to get this data out there um, because that's the only way that we're going to be able to make, you know, effective changes is if we know what's going on in our country, in our Indigenous communities, in our remote communities, in our, um, you know, high rates of cases in immigrant population as well. Yeah, that's astonishing considering, if I remember correctly, TB's, uh, in terms of the leading causes of death, the 13th overall, and then when you talk about infectious diseases, it's only second to COVID, I believe, globally. So it's just, and I would imagine this is probably a challenge with other countries as well. So I wanted to hear from you two, what what actions need to happen at the provincial level, local level, or even the national level for us to get a one step closer to stopping TB? Well, I mean, I think one of the most immediate pieces is to staff back up, right? T- TB programs have been, for, for good reasons, I'm not, not, you know, not saying that, you know, the COVID pandemic wasn't, hasn't been a real, uh, real urgent health issue, but nevertheless, um, it's difficult to do anything if you don't have people. So, Staffing back up the TB programs, I think, is a real urgency. Um, I I do feel like some of the things that that have really COVID has made really obvious how the interconnected digital healthcare surveillance, electronic surveillance, and intra intraoperable health health databases that talk to each other, how critical those are to be able to guide and tailor concrete actions. I think applying those lessons to TB urgently is really important. Um, I, I think publicly renewing the commitments that were made, especially at the national level to TB elimination, and again, especially for TB elimination in, for indigenous Canadians. To, to renew that commitment and put budgets behind it um, is, is essential. Um, we're not going to get anywhere without that. And I, I think as well, because t- actual on-the-ground TB care and prevention work happens at the provincial and territorial level, it can't just be a federal commitment. It really needs to be all of us committing together and working in the same direction. So that, you know, in a pragmatic way, that means federal and provincial and territorial and Indigenous Services Canada um, actually getting together and coming up with a common plan, not, you know, a fragmented siloed, some people do have a plan, other people are don't, uh, and on the ground, you know, people, people like, you know, TB nurses and physicians in the TB clinics and outreach workers are just doing incredibly good and important work, but you can't solve TB without an infrastructure. There's also the need to, um, for territorial, provincial um, organizations, programming, health, health centers, communities, for those health directors or those um, managers to put TB as a priority, especially if there's high incidence um, within their communities. Um, you know, it's being a TB program, we're a TB program for a reason because there's there's high numbers of TB in our communities. So our TB nurses, you know, like I said, 33 First Nations, um, we're busy. <laughs> we're very busy supporting everybody. Um, and then we're often called to do frontline services in these communities. And when we're not in there, TB, the TB program isn't even being focused on, really. Um, so I think making TB programming mandatory, that somebody in the community at every you know given day is dedicated to this TB program to ensure the continuity of care. Um, and also to have support for our TB program workers who, you know, are in the communities um, doing direct observe, observe therapy and 
you know, talking to us on the phone when we're hundreds of kilometers away. And, you know, it's, um, we support them as much as we can, but it would really make a difference if these communities actually um, put TB as a priority and, and made it mandatory for somebody to cover these programs while we're not, while we're not physically there. So um, in a way, like it, it really does have to start at the community level as well and have that engagement and a big part of our our organization's job as well as to provide community education. And we haven't been able to do that because of COVID. So um, hopefully with, you know, the numbers going down and restrictions easing that we can start to, to get back on that education and awareness piece and hopefully get more engagement from communities and leadership that way. Isn't another piece I want to add to, you know, what can we do? What can we do better? How can we get back on a better track and faster? Um, there's a new edition of the Canadian TB standards that is on track to be released on World TB Day this year, March 24th. And one of the things, or some of the things in that, that new Canadian TB standards are uh, new recommendations for shorter course latent TB treatments um, and updated recommendations around treatment of multidrug resistant TB. Um, and those are those those are really ex- exciting opportunities, and and you know much as we've been talking about how devastating COVID has been on TB care and TB programming, the fact that we're hopefully coming out of that pandemic, it feels like a chance to restart and reset a whole bunch of stuff for TB care. Um, I do want to flag that a bunch of those medications they're talked about in those new Canadian TB standards are either not licensed in Canada. So you have to jump through incredible hoops to get them despite them being core medicate. Like these are on the list of WHO essential medications and they can be difficult to get in Canada. So harnessing uh, health Canada and the powers that be to, to, make those medications truly accessible to all Canadians is another big piece I think we need to jump on. Um, And there are also really encouraging, at least early developments in um, uh, prospects for a new better tuberculosis vaccine and for even shorter TB treatment courses. And, you know, if nothing else, COVID has proven that if we want to, if we, the big collective we, we can put a ton of money and, and energy and resources into solving problems like coming up with a really effective COVID vaccine in the space of a year. We could do the same thing for TB. We haven't for decades, despite it being a WHO declared, you know, global pandemic emergency since the 1990s, but we could. COVID's kind of a, you know, case proof. Um, So, you know, okay, we can take some of that money we were pouring into COVID and say, there's another pandemic out there. Um, And there's so many good things happening that when we talk about global budgets and, you know, defense budgets and all that kind of thing, drops in the bucket um, really would make a massive difference in, in the lives of people that Tina and her team and, and us here in Toronto take care of. Yeah, that whole vaccine thing, my, you know, working from home um, and then school being canceled. My son was around me pretty much 24-7 during the earlier days of um, the pandemic. And then, of course, once the COVID vaccine was was created, he said, Mom, do they have a, a vaccine for TB? I said, well, they have one that's given at birth that covers you for the first two years. And he said, well, how come they came up with one so quickly for COVID? Why aren't they doing this for TB? And I said, I'm wondering the same thing. <laughs> um, so, you know, he was nine at the time that he said that. So he's, you know, a smart kid. <laughs> Um, but also talking about, you know, medication and that accessibility. And I also have to say, too, that active TB is treated with at least four different antibiotics um, in pill form most of the time. 
Imagine giving four different antibiotics to a one-year-old, a two-year-old, moving up to five years old. It's extremely difficult. And I think that if more money and was put into finding friendlier types of medication for children, I think that would make a huge difference as well because, you know, um, crushing up those pills, they taste awful. Um, these poor kids have to endure at least six months of, of all that. So, I mean, just even starting with something as basic as that is getting um, easier to take medication or different forms, liquid or what have you, right? Better tasting, <laughs> easier administration to kids would, would solve a big, a big issue too. Perfect. And it's so wonderful having this discussion. And I reflect back to when I was in grade seven, when I actually did my, I think my first classroom, one of my first classroom presentations, and it was on TB, tuberculosis. And so it's very interesting coming full circle and learning again, back, you know, after completing a master's and after going into public health and learning more and more about this. And I do have a suspicion that this podcast is going to be great because I feel like a lot of people have forgotten about tuberculosis. Even though it's such an ancient disease, it's still around and it's wreaking havoc in communities in Canada, specific provinces and all around the world. So I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to talk to both of you, Dr. Ray and Tina. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're so glad to have had you on today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.